If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're uh, in week two of uh, going through some of the kingdom parables in, in the book of Matthew. And uh, Jesus, through stories, he, he's a masterful storyteller. And we talked last week about how parables just, uh, in and of themselves, the very definition of a parable is, is, is that it's fiction. And the Lord would use even uh, fictitious stories in the Scripture to teach us true, uh, fixed, eternal realities, teaches us in such a way uh, that we can understand. And really, uh, the Scripture um, is written to us in a way that we can understand. Uh, God, in His uh, wisdom, uh, doesn't speak to us as if we're uh, the infinite. He speaks to us uh, like the finite creatures that we are. He condescended to us in the way that the Scripture was written. It was written by human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And certainly we have a Lord um, who condescended to us um, in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal word, and he sought us out and he saved us. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18, and we're going to focus on verses 21 uh, through 36. And, uh, and so I'm going to start with verse 21 and read uh, down to verse 22, make a few observations, then I'll read the rest of our text, and then we will ask the Lord to to just bless our time and give us grace and give us understanding as we look through the Word. But um, Matthew documents uh, Jesus, an interaction that Jesus is having with Peter, and then um, an extended discourse that he has with the rest of the disciples, starting with verse 21 here. Matthew wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Then Peter came to him, and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. Like last week, the, the, this parable is brought on by a question uh, from the Apostle Peter. Last week, the Apostle Peter asked Jesus a question which prompted uh, a parable, and this week, Peter asked a question that prompts another uh, parable. And in Judaism, around in the, in, in, even in the first century church here, uh, uh, forgiving someone of their sins three times, if someone has sinned against you three times and you've forgiven them three times, if you did that, uh, you, were, you were doing pretty well as far as uh, being a, a, a good, if you will, religious person. And so when Peter here, when he says, should I forgive seven times, he thinks he's, he's knocking it out of the park, right? He thinks he's impressing Jesus by his, his spiritual wisdom and insight. He's going over and beyond uh, what the, uh, the Pharisees of the day, what the religious leaders of the day uh, would have asked, would have required. And, and Jesus' reply to him he, he takes it even further. Jesus says that we're to forgive lavishly. Like Christian people should be a people that lavishly forgive. We're to forgive an unlimited amount of times. So 70 times 7 doesn't literally mean 70 times 7. We're to forgive 70 times 7. It means that, that we're to forgive unlimitedly. Jesus is using hyperbole here. His point is to, that we're always to have this forgiving heart posture if we are in fact Christians. And, and to further illustrate this, Jesus uses a parable, and this parable 
uh, has an assumption built into it that you want to take note of. This parable assumes that the disciples are a forgiven people and that God is the initiator of that forgiveness. Okay, the parable assumes that the dis- that disciples are a forgiving people and that God is the initiator of forgiveness. And so look with me at verse 23. I'm going to read down to verse 35 and then we'll ask the Lord um, to bless our time together. And this morning I'm reading out of the NKJV actually because I think that it gets this parable uh, a bit better than the ESV. So if you're looking down at your ESV and it doesn't quite match, that's the reason why. But verse 23 says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Verse 32, Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Verse 35, so my heavenly father, this is where we come out of the parable and Jesus gives us the plain meaning of it. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it's living and that it's active and, and that, God, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can see it, we can understand it, we can be changed by it for our good and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just to get our, our, uh, our balance a little bit better in Matthew chapter 18, if you're familiar uh, at all with Matthew chapter 18, uh, you would know that it's, it's uh, primarily the place where Jesus begins to teach uh, uh, about church discipline and, uh, and the necessity for local churches to be a people that are committed to church discipline. Uh, what you may not know is that also uh, in Matthew chapter 18, there's another parable uh, uh, that, that's found in this chapter, and that's the parable of the lost sheep. And we see that Jesus talks about the, the shepherd that's committed to leaving the 99 sheep uh, for the sake of the one sheep that's lost. And, and it's really that parable that leads into uh, the, the discourse on church discipline. And so we see Jesus 
uh, really through this parable teach us that, that he's the good shepherd that comes to seek and to save the lost. He's the good shepherd that leaves the 99 that are found and that are safe and that are, uh, that are okay to go and to chase after the one who has been deceived by sin, to go and chase after the one who's wandered off from the flock of God so that he can bring them back in. And Jesus tells us that that really is his work. That's what we see him do in his first advent, his incarnation, when he uh, he came down from heaven through the Virgin Mary. He came to seek and to save us and to bring us back into the fold of God to provide reconciliation. And, and Jesus, the interesting thing, has commissioned us as his church to continue that reconciliation work. And that's where the, the bit on church discipline comes into. We think of church discipline primarily uh, in a negative sense, uh, as if we're out to point out the sins of people, when really that's, what not, that's not what uh, the aim is for church discipline. Church discipline is about loving your brother or your sister enough to notice that they've wandered off from the flock of God and to chase after them the way Jesus Christ has chased after us and to say, come back. Come back. You've been deceived by sin. Turn away from that sin and be restored to God and be restored to your church family that loves you enough to chase after you and to say, we want you back. We want you to be a part of us. This is the way out. And so that's where we are in Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 18, and we get to um, this section here where um, Jesus begins to talk about personal offenses. And so in, in, in Matthew 18, with the parable of the lost sheep, we see people that are deceived by their own sin, and we see that, that we're, um, we're to continue that seeking out ministry that Jesus started by addressing sin truthfully, saying that the way out is repentance so that they can be forgiven and restored to God. And now we get to this section here, and we see um, how, do, how uh, we uh, um, uh, deal with uh, uh, allowing personal, uh, or not, uh, better put, not allowing personal animosity to poison the local church. So how, how we deal with people that uh, aren't just caught up in sin, but could be caught up in sin against us personally, where we're the ones who have been offended and there's an offender. What does that relationship look like? That's what we're wrestling with this morning. So our passage is dealing this morning with the danger of allowing personal animosity to poison the local church. Because frankly, it's a tremendous danger. There's, there's no place in God's church for bitterness. Right? There's, there's no place in God's church for these personal offenses that are unresolved in your heart and in your mind and, and that, that bleed out into divisive, passive-aggressive comments that, that in turn sow seeds of division in the context of the local church and can negatively impact what we're trying to do, which is build a people up to look more like Christ and to reach lost people with this precious gospel that the Lord has entrusted to us. So in the passage, right before our passage, the concern is with the spiritual well-being of, a, of the offending member, the person who sinned. And in our text today, the focus is on the willingness of an individual not to insist on his or her own right but to forgive. 
So the passage before us is concerned about the effect on the sinner. Our text this morning is concerned with our response uh, toward being sinned against. Does that make sense? And so Jesus here, he, he, he uses a parable to help us grasp the necessity of forgiving those who've sinned against us. And the first thing, if you're taking note, uh, notes, that you'll notice is that our debts are far greater than we can imagine, and we cannot pay them. Right? Our debts are far greater than we can imagine, and we cannot pay them. Right? That's what verse 24 is getting at. And when he had begun to settle accounts, speaking of the master here, one was brought to him, a servant was brought to him, who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, the sum of 10,000 talents is lost on us today. But it's like saying the servant owed a zillion dollars. I don't even know how many, I don't even know how many zeros that is really, but, but that's essentially what this parable is teaching us. So maybe to make it hit home even further, our national debt, I looked at our national debt and there's a depressing um, little thing that uh, you can go onto online to see uh, how fast it is going up. But the uh, we're over, uh, as of this week, over $23 trillion in debt as Americans, or as, as the country of America, and that, that's the highest it's ever been. And around election season, right, we're in the thick of it now, moving toward November. Presidents and governments make promises of, of reducing the debt, much like the indebted servant made a promise to reduce his enormous debt, but each year the, the debt increases, and it increases at, 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 at exorbitant levels. But as far as, as high, for as high as our, our national debt is, right, our, our spiritual debt is much higher than that, isn't it? It's way higher than the national debt. Paul in Romans chapter 3, he quotes a psalm. He quotes Psalm chapter 14, and I alluded to this psalm last week, but, but he uses this psalm to describe really the eroding nature of our sin. He uses the psalm to really describe how, um, how comprehensive our depravity, our lostness, our debt, our sin is. And, and he says this in, in Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, right, Jews and Gentiles, that they are under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. Some translations say worthless. There's none who does good. No, not one. And then listen to the progression here. Their throat is an open tomb or an open grave. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps, the poison of, of vipers, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of, of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known and get this, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Paul tells us how bad the situation really is. It's, it's pretty gloomy. He says that everybody has gone astray. 
There's not one person, there's not one person in this room, there's not one person in the world that apart from the intervening work of the Holy Spirit seeks after God, according to Romans chapter 3. And then he illustrates the, the thoroughness of our depravity, the thoroughness of our sin debt that we've had since birth. He says our throat is an open tomb, right? He starts on the inside, our tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on our lips, our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, our feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery is what we're committed to, we've not known peace, there's no fear of God before our eyes. Now, we're not as sinful as we could be by God's grace, but we are, according to this passage and a myriad of other passages throughout the Old and New Testament, we are, from the inside out, sinful. And at the root of it, if we bottom line it, the root issue is, apart from the intervening work of the Holy Spirit, we don't fear God. We don't fear God. And, and I don't think that we meditate on this enough. You know how I know? Look at, look at the division that, that often plagues local churches. Right? Both, both in, in, in a local church context, you can look on social media and see the division amongst local churches. You can, I drove down the road the other day that's been so just killed. Uh, I drove down the road past a local church that's just been so killed by members infighting and bitterness that they can't even offer a Sunday morning service any longer. It kills a local church. And we're like the, the servant in the parable who, who hastily says to the master that he's indebted to by zillions of dollars. He says, Master, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Right? I, can, I can do this. I can get, us, I can get myself out of debt. Right? The, the servant, he's flippant. And the reason why he's flippant about it is because he hasn't, he hasn't really considered how far into debt he is. Right? He hasn't considered how far-reaching that debt extends. And the, the servant, the odd thing is the servant, he needs grace. He needs grace, and he doesn't even realize that he needs grace. Right? He thinks he's clever enough to get himself out of a jam. And, and as we see in this parable, he kind of projects that lack of humility. He projects that pride onto the servant that owes him money. Let me the, the second note here, if you're following along with me, because what, what the master does is incredible, and it's an indicator of what God in Christ Jesus has done for us. God looks at us with compassion and forgives us of our debts. Right? God looks at us with compassion. Verse 27, the master of the servant, he was moved with compassion, and he, he released the servant. It's zillions of dollars in debt, and he forgave him, and he forgave him. The, the master gave this servant what the servant didn't ask for. Right? God gives us something so much better than what we ask for. The master gave him forgiveness from the debt. The master gave him Freedom from the debt. 
He's in good standing. He's in right standing. The accounts are all paid up. And God in Christ certainly has done that, right? We, we serve this kind God who gave us something that we didn't ask for, which is a regenerate heart. Because according to Romans chapter 3, our hearts aren't inclined to ask God to be reconciled to him. Our hearts are inclined with, I can figure this thing out, or I'm a good person. I'm going to take matters into my own hands, when in reality what we've continued to do is dig a a pit deeper and deeper and deeper, all the while Romans 3 is saying there's no one who seeks after God. There's, There's no one who does right. There's no such thing as a righteous person. And an unrighteous person just doesn't decide one day to become a righteous person. That doesn't happen. But that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit's not a gentleman. The Holy Spirit does something to us that we don't ask for. He takes this stony heart, this heart that's hostile toward God, this heart that's committed to figuring things out on its own, and it chips away. Holy Spirit chips away at our hearts, softens our hearts, awakens our hearts to our sinfulness, to our sin debt, makes us begin to call these things that we would maybe say, man, I've made a mistake here and there, helps us to realize the vulgarity of our sin. We no longer round it off and say, man, yeah, I've made a few mistakes in my life. We say, I have transgressed against a holy God, and the payment I deserve is death. That's what I've earned. But the Holy Spirit chips away at that stony heart, gives us this heart of flesh, and all of a sudden, by God's grace, we yearn to respond. And when we respond, we respond because the Holy Spirit's converted our heart. We respond with repentance of our sin, a turning away from our sin, and and faith in the finished work of Christ, His perfect person and work. That's the response of a heart that's regenerated. That's the only response. We can't think of doing anything else. We repent and we believe. It's two sides of the same coin, really. You can't have faith without repentance. You can't have repentance without faith. And so the Lord gives us what we don't ask for. He gives us a regenerate heart so that we can confess our sins to God and so we can be restored. We can be put in right relationship. He gives us something better than we can ever think of. He gives us something better than we could ever ask for. Something beyond our wildest dreams that a holy God would say, you're mine. Everything is taken care of. Three. In God's kingdom, we forgive others of their debts against us because God forgave us of our debts. And so now what we're doing is we're living in light of the gospel. That's where this parable is getting at. Again, the parable is assuming that disciples are forgiven people and that in forgiven people, people that are truly reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? People that, that, that have, 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 have been radically transformed and who are mindful of their, their sin debts that the Lord has has lavishly forgiven us of, we forgive in light of that. We forgive people who have sinned against us in light of that. Right? A forgiven people exhibit this continuous heart posture of forgiveness toward those who sin against him. 
and, and that's what the servant in this parable, that's what he didn't grasp. With verse 28 here, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him, and he took him by the throat. So not only is he not forgiving him of his debts, but he's, he's violent about it, isn't he? He says, pay me what you owe. So his fellow, fellow servant fell down at his feet, and he begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all, right? Something that the, the servant said to his master, and the servant would not, but went and threw him in a prison till he should pay that. He says, you're, you're going you're gonna to pay this debt. So this guy who owed zillions of dollars throws a guy in jail that owes him a few bucks. Crazy, right? right? That's a contradiction. We see the hypocrisy here of this servant. We see the arrogance, really, right? The, the arrogance, first and foremost, for the servant to think that he could pay back his master zillions of dollars, and then we see the arrogance bleed into his relationship with the servant that owed him a few bucks by saying, you're, you're going to take care of this, and I'm going to throw you in prison. I'm going to take away your freedom until you pay this. And again, we, we tend to read these stories and identify either as the hero or we, we tend to identify as some neutral third party that has a proper perspective and is surveying the land with, with clear glasses on, right? But listen closely. We're the servant who tramples on the grace of God. We're the servant who tramples on the grace of God. We may read this and feel a, a sense of justice rise up in us, but ironically enough, we do what this servant did in this story. We, we forget our debt, right? we forget our sin debt, and we forget the compassion of God. We, and, and it showcases itself when we interact with those who've offended us. And, and let me for a minute just press into some ways that we forget our own sins and we forget God's compassion. Here, here's how you know, if, you're, if you want to take a, uh, a personal inventory here, here's how we, here are some things, and this isn't exhaustive, but here's some ways that we can know that we're forgetting our sins, we're lessening our sins, we're rounding our sins out, and we're forgetting the lavish compassion of our God um, in, in the way that we interact with other people. But when you see the sins of others is more grievous than your own sins, you've forgotten the vulgarity of your sin, and you've forgotten the compassion of God. Can you believe so-and-so did this? Can you believe they behaved this way? Can you believe they acted this way? Can you believe they said this in this manner? When you become fixated on that, and, and sometimes we share prayer requests, pray for so-and-so, he's abandoning his wife, and we air out someone else's dirty laundry, and, as if it, and, and we do so in a way that makes us sound super spiritual. I'm really praying for them when really what we're committed to is gossiping about them. And when we see the sins of others as more grievous than our sins, Jesus says that we have planks in our eyes. That's how he talks about how we're to engage with people. Remove the plank out of your eye before you move the speck of dust out of someone else's eye. Right? How do you remove a speck of dust out of somebody's eye? Right? If, if my boy's got a speck of dust in his eye, I'm really gentle about removing it. I don't want to cause any damage. Right? I gently open his eye. I blow in it gently. All right? I make sure that uh, I, I want to be effective with getting whatever's in his eye out, and I have to be gentle in order to do that. But we don't confront people. We don't talk about people's sins in that way. We're just brutal about it. They have the plank in their eye. I have the speck in my eye. Right? Paul, perhaps at the peak of his spiritual maturity, right before he was executed, he told Timothy, he described himself as the chief of sinners. 
And you ain't better than Paul. Right? Some of you are like, I don't know, maybe. Maybe. He, he looked at himself as the chief of sinners. That was his own confession about himself. Second, secondly, when you treat others harshly, are you, are you harsh with people? Are you harsh with your spouse? Are you harsh with your kids? Are you harsh with people in the local church? Are you harsh and inconsiderate of people outside the local church? How about this? When you have constant critical judgments about decisions that you don't make, Right, the decisions of other people. Or when you're known by what you're against and not what you're for. Right, just this overall negative perspective on things. About our complaining. We can be a complaining people. Right, you complain about others. You complain about your circumstances. There's kind of a wallowing in self-pity. Forgotten the compassion of God. And then this was the last one I jotted down. When our lives are marked by a prayerlessness. When our lives are marked by a prayerlessness. It shows that we don't really think that we're dependent upon the Lord. Right? Because the act of praying in and of itself is a confession. That we're solely dependent upon God for everything. And fourth here. Those who harbor unforgiveness, this is where the the parable even gets more serious. Those who harbor unforgiveness are not a part of God's kingdom. Those who harbor unforgiveness are not a part of God's kingdom. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And then Jesus gives that interpretation. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. And so look at what happens to the unforgiving servant. Jesus says in this parable that the servant was delivered to the torturers until he paid everything that was due. Okay, the, the unforgiving servant, he doesn't just receive jail. He doesn't just get thrown into jail the same way he threw the guy who owed him a few bucks into jail. He receives torture by tormentors. And as we know, the servant owes a debt. He may not even realize this, but he owes a debt that he can't repay. And so I think here, Jesus may be speaking about hell. He may be giving us this illustration about hell here. Hell is not a separation from God, as as I think it's been taught before. God's presence is very real, even in hell. And in, in, in God's presence, the, the, what, what people experience in hell isn't a lack of God's presence, but it's the unrelenting wrath of God, the unrelenting wrath of God for sin. And Jesus, he comes out of this parable, and he gives us this plain, just right in our face meaning, my heavenly Father, he'll do this to each of you if from his heart you don't forgive your brother his trespasses. And so this parable is a, a warning if you will. It's, it's to warn specifically about grudges, about bitterness, about unforgiveness. And, and this statement, it echoes an earlier statement in Matthew, if you're familiar with the gospel of Matthew. But Matthew chapter 6, a few chapters back, 
Jesus says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, So this parable, Jesus really is teaching us that those people who are truly reconciled to God will be marked by their eagerness to forgive others. They'll be marked by their eagerness to forgive people that have sinned against them. And now because of the weightiness of unforgiveness, let me just as we close down, I want to define biblical forgiveness for us because the local church probably uh, hasn't been as thorough as we need to be on this particular issue. And I want to address how do we forgive those that have sinned against us? What, is that, what does that look like practically speaking? And, and I'll be quick for time's sake, but forgive, there's forgiveness on two levels. Forgiveness on two levels. And level one is, is a vertical forgiveness. And, and what that is is a heart posture. This is between you and the Lord, okay? And it's based on what God in Christ Jesus has done for you. There's this, if you will, a willingness to receive the person who has offended you. It's an eagerness to extend forgiveness, to be reconciled to this person uh, that has sinned grievously against you. And, and this takes a lot, this takes prayer, this takes reflecting on your own sin, some of the stuff we've talked about. It takes reminding yourself of, of uh, God's compassion, His kindness, and based on those things, it, it, it allows for this, this humility to, to, to spring forth that's eager to uh, distribute uh, forgiveness, that's eager to receive a brother or sister who's sinned against you which leads to level two, horizontal. That's, that's uh, transactional. That means a, a relationship can be restored. And, and that you can't have level two forgiveness without level one forgiveness. But level two forgiveness isn't always possible. A relationship can always be restored. And so that's why I even think that the parable ends with forgiving from the heart, this, this heart posture, because transactional relationship, right, uh, restora- uh, restoration in a relationship, that's not always a wise idea. It's not always possible. There's several reasons why it may not be possible. It may be inappropriate, right? A, a crime was committed. It might not be safe for that relationship to be uh, restored. Uh, the offender may be dead, and so you're, you're not able to have that transactional uh, interaction. There may be geographical distance that's prohibiting you from being able to have that relationship restored. Or the offender doesn't see his or her sin, and they're unwilling to repent and reconcile. They say, there's no sin. I've done nothing, nothing whatsoever wrong against you. And they go on in their hard-heartedness. And so, um, and so there's no opportunity for that relationship to be uh, reconciled under the grace of God. And so the bottom line of our parable this morning is that at Coastal Community Church, those of us who profess to be Christians— we should be models of forgiveness. We should be leading the culture in what forgiveness looks like. We should be committed uh, to reconciliation because God in Christ has reconciled us. Right? And so how could we withhold something that we've been given and given freely? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for your kindness and that you uh, have brought us to yourself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and your Holy Spirit lives in us, God, and so we can live in light of your glorious gospel. 
by being doers of your word and not hearers only. And so, God, I just pray that if there are relationships in this room that need to be reconciled, I pray that you would grant us humility. I pray that conversations would take place so that we can walk in the light where you're in the light. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's perhaps no clearer 